Hello and welcome to a special edition of the New Model Advisor podcast, which we are broadcasting this week to celebrate International Women's Day. I'm Ollie Smith, online producer at NMA, and also hosting today's proceedings with me is NMA reporter Christine Dawson. Hi, yep, uh, we're here for International Women's Day. Um, we've got some leading female advice professionals to talk about some of the issues of gender diversity in the advice sector. Indeed, we're surrounded by three financial legends. Uh, it's Petronella West, uh, founding director of Investment Quorum, Helen Halcroft, managing director of Equanimity IFA, and Jeannie Boyle, director and chartered financial planner at EQ Investors. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, we've got some figures here about how many women there are in advice. Well, basically, there are far fewer women than men in advice. I think no, that's kind of can't fail to notice that at this point. Um, also, when it comes to uh, directors in in the advice sector, far fewer of them uh, would be women. So it was out of uh, just over well, 31,000 directors, um, uh, this is according to FCA figures, uh, there were around, or well, less than 5,000 were women, and 26,600 were men. Um, this kind of got us thinking about if, like, where the women are in advice. So, yes, there are fewer of them, uh, but they're there as well, right? Mm -hmm. So are they hidden? Like, why is it that sometimes it feels like there are fewer women than there actually are in advice? Um, like sometimes they'll be doing so um, less of the director positions. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Where are the women in advice? Are they hidden? And should firms be doing more to sort of push them forwards? Well, there are less women full stop in the industry. That's, I think, a very much a given fact. Mm. Um, I know certainly I've been in the industry for 20 plus years and there are far more women now than there used to be, but nothing like what the, um, nothing as it should be compared to other industries like the legal profession. Because certainly Petronella, when I used to be a broker consultant, Petronella was probably one of the only few female <laughs> IFAs that I knew of at the time, because there weren't that many female IFAs in London. I think one of the issues is that um, I'm doing a lot of work in schools at the minute and talking about financial planning, and I think one of the problems is that you need to educate girls on financial planning as a career that is really satisfactory for women to undertake, whereas opposed to the perception that it's finance and therefore potentially more male-dominated. So um, I think that's where we need to start to change the dynamics and also that um, women have a tendency to go more into the parent planning side uh, of advice. So I think advisors, I personally think advisors and power planners are fundamentally very different skill set and require different people. But I think women maybe find that an easier role to cope with family life, working from home, report writing, that kind of thing, which may be just a different side to things, which is a, perhaps there are some more hidden on the power planning side than on the actual advice side. No, I'd absolutely agree. I think there are lots of women in advice, but they're, they're hidden away in the back office. And for some reason, they're not transitioning into the leadership roles that we'd like them to be in. And I think we need to ask ourselves why that's happening and why the women that are in advice who are very able, very capable, aren't progressing in their careers as fast as we'd like them to. I think as an, as an industry, though, if we're top heavy with older advisors, full stop, in order to attract young talent, I think everywhere, you know, you've got CityWire have their own um, sort of uh, the new generation of, of trying to attract new, new young people into the industry is, is one thing. But also that the sort of slightly more older dinosaur style advisor firms allow a good transition for advisors coming through and step paths for, for and particularly for women, because if you are going to have children, let's face mm. it, that's what we're programmed also to do. 
um, that there's a capacity for the advice for, for women to step out and come back in or to work part time and to for, for us to transition that through and to allow that to happen, don't you think? I think advice is, is a brilliant career for uh, anyone who's looking to have children because there's so much scope to work flexibly and to work from home. Uh, and that applies not just to women, but for men as well. I think it's wonderful to see men embracing fatherhood and, and working part-time and taking flexi days as well. And I think everyone's a winner when we recognise that there are parents in the workplace, not just mothers. Yeah. But then so. the, the, what I've found happens is that a lot of women might start off with a really good career and then have that maternity break but then actually never come back into yeah. the industry. Mm. And I certainly know of women 20 years ago who were fantastic at doing this job, and then they went off and it took the five or seven years to bring up the children until they went to primary school, but then lost the confidence to actually come back in, and they thought that they didn't have the knowledge and are now doing something totally different because they don't feel the confidence to come back in to this industry because with our industry you do have to keep up to date with your knowledge all the time and it doesn't you know things do change all the time so there's two two things there one was about confidence which is something yeah. I definitely wanted to talk about because I think it comes up in a whole load of different areas when you're talking about women advice and gender diversity um, but the first thing I wanted to just move back to was uh, why women would want to do this as a career. So other than flexi time, <laughs> like, what's your pitch? Why should because women think, want think, to do I this? I think being a really good financial planner is about listening, having empathetic skills, and that is generally a more female... Generally. I'm, I'm generally I'm, I'm because I think there's some brilliant <laughs> male financial planners and this isn't and I think it's really important when we meet as women to discuss gender issues it's also important that we're not doing it in, in, a, in a such a way that that it sort of becomes man hating or, or you know and I think it's really important that as an as a industry it's good for men and women it's just that I think we t it's an industry that can attract more women in simply because they need to realise that skill set. And when I talk in schools, I talk very much about what do you think you need to be a financial planner? What skill set do you need? And they talk about economics and finance. In reality, it's not. It's about communication. Mm -hmm. And women just... It's about advertising. That's what the role's about. So I think it's... That's why it suits women well, because they are... They can be very good listeners. Yeah, not to exclusion yeah. of men. It, it, does, <laughs> it does make it difficult to talk about it, doesn't it? Because in a way, you have to generalise, um, which can also... Um, it can be difficult to have that discussion when you're saying, well, generally speaking, women are better at communicating. But you have to be able to generalise, I guess, don't you? So, yes. Mm. I just wondered whether there's, um, you know, a case for saying that, you know, it, if there's a minority of women out there, for instance, we had a cover star a couple of weeks ago on the, on the front of our magazine, and uh, one of the most interesting things that she said in the interview was that she really struggled with this sort of transition to the... You know, new model of financial planning, uh, where it was much more sort of soft skills based, and it was about listening rather than just reacting all the time with a product or you know recommendation. And um, I thought that was a fascinating example of maybe you know someone who perhaps bucked the trend or the generalisation. Um, You'll see it a lot. I mean, and, and I wonder what more women can do to support other women who perhaps find or are finding that transition into sort of more client facing roles where they have to use those communication skills and are perhaps getting used to it. Um, you know what more what we can do to support them. I think there's a I think there's a real training need in 
fact-finding or, I mean, I think fact-finding is actually an incredibly hard thing to do. You think it isn't because it's just sitting with somebody asking facts questions. Facts. And facts are facts. But yeah. it's, 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 it's establishing the facts and then the financial need around those facts and disturbing the client to such a point gently, particularly initially, to gain rapport and trust and then also to um, be able to ask the right questions at the right time. So I think that um, there's a huge skill set in that. And I think companies are recognising that more and more. I, you, you see a lot of more work that, that, that the industry is doing around how important that skill set is because technical stuff is technical stuff. You can kind of learn it. Mm. Um, I, I do also, I mean, the other thing that I think I think is an industry, notwithstanding the ladies around this table and, and other new model advisors, but there is still a huge disparity between the quality of advice. So as long as all firms are true new model advisor, and I don't know how new model advice has been in publication for 15 or so years now, so it's you know, we should all be new model advisors, the reality is not the mm. truth. I think as we transition away from that kind of old school way yeah. of doing things where it's about perhaps selling a product, gathering assets towards a model where we're, we're being the client's trusted friend and partner mm. in their journey through life and planning their finances, that surely has to be more attractive to, to women coming into the, into the industry. Yeah. I hear uh, lots of women say they, they, they think about coming into the advice world, perhaps transitioning from a power planning role, but they don't want to deal with the sales culture, they don't want targets, they don't want to feel mm. under pressure to sell something. But as we become as advisors in the true sense of the word, I think they will, they will feel less threatened by that. Mm. What can men do to reduce that, you know, that pressure and that sales culture? I mean, that's a big question, isn't it? It's a difficult one, but there is a, you know, there is a perception that, you know, that I think still exists in some parts of the city, for instance, that finance is a boys' game and and, and is a game rather than something. That, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know. But, yeah. But that has to come from the top, but it has mm. to be the ethos of the firm in the first place. That if the ethos of the firm is you don't care what you do to that client as yeah. long as you get the funds and management and you charge them that ongoing advice fee or the large upfront fees, it doesn't matter what what goes on that in that business is still going to be a sales driven business. If what's coming from the top is that you treat clients as you want to be treated yourself, that you're actually looking at the bigger picture, getting to understand what their goals are and then presenting solutions around those goals, that makes it far less sales driven and actually far more about what the needs of the clients are. I mean, I think there has to be a recognition on profitability and profit margins because it's expensive to give advice. We all know that. It's, it's, not, it's not a product that we can offer at the price I think the FCA would like us to be offering it at because of the complexities around regulation and compliance, and quite rightly so. But it's that recognition of sort of value and price that actually, the, you know, as, 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 as a business leader, I recognise the, the, the need to meet bottom line pro profitability, but not at the cost of sales on a client, because I think if you do the right thing by the client, you probably come out with the best outcome anyway, and you attract a new business because you're reputationally, you're, you're, you, you sit in a higher category. Mm. Here's a statistic for you. Oh, we, we just have, so I, I cast myself as Richard Altman in this role. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, not wanting to take to front and front and centre. Um, you know, there are various reports that show that you know women coming to front of centre in business is a brilliant thing, and will um, you know will we'll drive equality, it will drive progression within the industry. Um, I'm just looking at a statistic here that that suggests that financial institutions are losing out on a hundred and thirty billion pound business opportunity by not appealing to women, mm. by not actively marketing themselves to women and in terms of top-down change you know, we have a women in finance charter that the treasury select committee are discussing at the moment they're pulling in all sorts of great examples of 
people who are um, you know, living out change within their firms. But it's not compulsory. So is there a case for saying, you know, that if we are emphasising the need for top-down change, that it has to be compulsory, that there has to be some kind of law to effectively force people's hands? I personally don't think so, because okay. ultimately people working out in this industry because we really enjoy helping people mm -hmm. and actually it should be coming far more from a regulator point of view and actually okay. spelling it out to the public that what we do is we help people we don't sell products mm. um, and I think until that comes from the top from a regulator point of view that that's actually what we do as a firm as an, and as an industry targets you know targets are great but ultimately what's the point of getting a, you know a bunch of people into doing a job who aren't necessarily the right fit for that job in the first place it's all about actually what we want to be doing is enticing and attracting the right talent um, actually, that leads me nicely onto my question about whether you see yourselves as role models. Um, I mean, you know, looking at it from a media perspective, you appear in the magazine, you get quoted, so I'd probably say yes, but, you know, it's interesting to hear from yourselves if you see yourselves as role models. And also, if you do, what comes with that? Because if, if that's how you see yourself, that's kind of on top of a lot of other things usually, isn't it? It's like as a, a person who works in a business, runs a business, um, and somebody who maybe runs a home or has other responsibilities. So I'm interested to hear your perspective on that. Uh, no, I don't see myself as a role model. I think that would be quite um, an arrogant thing to say. We didn't claim that. Um, I think uh, as a board director in a, in a company, I have a responsibility to make sure that the women in our company have take, make the most of the opportunities that are offered to them mm. and to make sure that we're a good working place for women. Uh, but no, I wouldn't say see myself as a role model. So I'd, I, well, I'd fundamentally disagree because I've got a daughter who's 13. Yeah. Um, I'm a school governor and in, in, in my spare time. So actually, I think that people do when you have those positions of responsibility indirectly. I'm not saying you hold yourself out and say, I am a role model. And I understand the arrogant approach of that. And actually, to some extent, I don't think a man would say the same thing. I don't think he would say, I think that's arrogant. I think that's sometimes our own. You don't want to. You're, you are an important, valuable citizen to financial planning. And I don't know if you have children, but to my family and to my staff. And I think actually, as you get older and more experienced, you, you automatically become one because people look up to you and say, well, how did you do that? And what, what good decisions did you make or what bad decisions? And what can I learn from that? So I, I get it that you don't want to say it. But I think the reality is different from the truth, because I think people do look up to you and think, well, you did make it. Um, and I think as a parent, you do are all the time. So um, I, I would yeah, I'd say probably we are. <laughs> I, I'm, I would say I think we are that I certainly get approached to mentor other women, not necessarily in our industry, but running their own businesses. Because I think having set up a business from scratch, um, you that one thing I wish I'd done when I set the business up was actually find a mentor and actually have someone to help me go through those learning steps in those early years. And if what I can do is to just help people when I'm having a coffee with them once a month and just give them some tips based on what I've learnt, I wouldn't say it's an arrogant thing. I would just say that that's what other people have approached me. And again, I've had mums at school coming up to me and saying that they've seen me as a role model for their daughters who have seen a lot of the other parents at school 
be that the men in the school who've got the larger jobs and the women potentially are more stay-at-home house mums, that it's actually really good to see women at school who are actually running their own businesses. Mm, No, I I agree with that. I think I'm being a sort of bit bit reticent. Oh, gosh, not me. I had a role model. It's a shrinking violet. This comes back to Christine's point about confidence and what we fraternally refer to as the imposter syndrome. And that's classic. That is is it in classic action. You know, I mean, I'm not here to discuss your age, but, you know, we're we're, we're slightly older. We are more experienced. We have Mm. positions of responsibility, which require you to make decisions every day. And I think that's, that's one of the issues, fundamentally, that we face. Because I don't believe you'd have that same discussion if yeah. you were sitting here with, you know, my business partner or, you know, some of the other larger male IFAs. Yeah. By, by larger, I don't mean by size. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then um, I, I was going to say, I've got two boys and they come into the office quite regularly. They normally come into the office once a week to do homework and they're generally just pottering around in the office. But I, they see me as the boss in the office and they obviously see me at a mum yeah. at home but then at the weekend when they're playing rugby I'll, I volunteer to give soup out to the kids after they've played rugby because I want them to see that you have to do everything in life you can't just be running a business you can't you know that, that there has to be diversity in your life that um, you know that I, I certainly wasn't brought up with having a mum or a grandmother who was running their own business they were housewives they were farmers and um, you know I've been used to that you have to get stuck in and get on with it kind of thing. Well, let's ask a question about uh, the role models thing because whenever I flick through pages of the magazine you know I, I find these sort of great inspirational quotes from really famous investors sorry, and almost all of them are invariably men and it's the kind of uh, Warren Buffett obsession if you will I know not so much Donald Trump these days but um, I wondered whether there are enough, I mean, financial, financial planning is not just about investment, uh, absolutely accept that, but whether there are enough uh, female uh, investment role models where people, you know, young girls or, you know, uh, women coming out of degrees can read a book about how this woman or that woman set up a business and they've become super, super successful. Because at the moment, I think that's something that I just don't see. I don't see the next, you know, female role Well, so the man's writing the book, the woman's bringing up the children. Yeah. <laughs> It was an interesting observation. I, I, I couldn't quantify the statistics on how many books women have written over men yeah. have written. But yeah, I think that. But historically, there's some great quotes by you know these. He's a he's a fantastic, fantastic uh, investor and has, you know, these things. I, I you know I think the era from he's from there were less have just fundamentally less women in business, but they are coming through. Mm, look at mm. Helen Morrissey. Yeah, yeah. she's a fantastic yeah, cool. example. Yeah. I was just going to say I think the fund management industry actually far more women are coming through the fund management yeah. industry. Mm-hmm. It's our industry more than anything, as in the financial advice sector, which is the one that's really slow in dragging its feet and getting more women out into the advice sector. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear maybe how you guys started in advice then. Well, we've actually, you kind of touched on it already, but um, to to hear how you guys did it and also um, what might be holding other people back from taking the same route. Yeah, well, I'm, I was going to say, I, I was meant to be a farmer, end of, and that was it. <laughs> Ma, I was brought up by grandparents who were farmers. I was not allowed to go to university. I funded myself through university because my grandfather expected me to be a secretary in a typing pool and then to marry a farmer, you know, when I turned 21, so to speak. Um, and 
I fundamentally came into the intrigues of family family bereavements, but we had a phenomenal financial advisor, solicitor and accountant who gave my mother at the time and my grandfather wonderful advice when she was really poorly. And then, um, and I, I used to sit in on those meetings at the age of nine and 10, not having a clue what was going on, but just being nosy. And then funding myself and being quite stubborn and not wanting to listen to my grandfather, took a job working for an insurance brokers. And then that is how I ultimately came into the industry. But I've had to really fight to actually carve a career for myself because my grandfather didn't even think I should be doing exams because I should be at home on the farm more. You mean fighting their expectations? Yeah, no, absolutely. In your head? No, 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 my my grandfather never once congratulated me on getting a degree. He used to go (laughs) tell all the neighbours, but he never once congratulated me on getting a degree. Wow. Well I've, been, well, I've been in this industry a very, very long time, so over 30 years. So when I started, it wasn't the industry it is today. So it was a kind of fall out of school, first job. Um, I've never looked back. I mean, I've used the last 30 years to become double chartered, to build a business, to build a career. But I kind of fell into it because it was, an unreg- it was not regulated like it is today. Um, I think it's a very it's a very different path. So for me, it was just it was just right place, right time when I was 18. And I never looked back, really. Yeah, I sort of bimbled around a bit after university doing various different jobs and uh, decided after a while to find something a little bit more more serious and more challenging. And I was given an opportunity by a lady called Lizanne Meeling who ran her, um, a firm called MDM Associates when I had nothing to recommend me to a career in finance at all. Um, and she gave me a chance in an administration job and I took it through there, through that path from administrator, power planner into a client-facing role. So what might be holding people back from taking similar routes today? Is there something or is it more people... Uh, well, I think today there's a, there's a proven career path, um, whether you whether it's the CII or the CISI or professional bodies promoting it um, as a career. I think, you know, us internally promoting it as a career, you're right. I think it would help to have more regulatory and government input. I, d- I don't think legislating is, 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 is one way of doing it, but I think just constant promotion, how important financial planning advice is. I think the money advice service has been really instrumental in, in broadcasting it as, a, as, a, as an industry. Um, but I think that um, it's it's knowing that it blends to your skill set, which I comes back to education, you know, careers fairs. I was at one last night, you know, promoting the what is financial planning really about, which is the side that obviously we're, we're, we're most mm-hmm. concerned with. And, and and, you know, creating interest in it as a, an alternative career, uh, you know, to what people perceive to be finance and investment. So I think it might be a good time to talk about uh, what you find inspiring. So we've asked you to bring in two things. So it's International Women's Day. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, we want to bring in something that uh, would help us celebrate International Women's Day. Mm-hmm. Massive deal. Great day. And uh, second of all, something that you find inspiring, uh, maybe something that might inspire others, but mostly just, you know, how it connects to yourself. So who's got something? Yeah, who wants to go first? Okay, I'll I'll, I'll kick off. Um, My big inspiration at the moment for International Women's Day is about, uh, I'm working with girls in Sierra Leone, uh, and Sierra Leone is one of the poorest countries in the world, and we're looking at why girls drop out at secondary school, and the reason, if they drop out at secondary school, um, and it's for a huge number of reasons, poverty, early pregnancy, but it's also because uh, when it's that time of the month, they're unable to go to school because they have no sanitary provision. Uh, so I brought in sanitary towels, which is a bit alternative. Uh, we've actually took a whole load out there to, to, to some girls who are really, I mean, there's the poorest of the poor, and it's in a way to encourage them to go to secondary school. Girls in Sierra Leone go to secondary school uh, who can, each year they complete have a massive multiplier effect on their own internal communities. So we see a direct impact on changing communities from within 
Um, and actually, one of the things we're looking at at the moment with, with Street Child as a charity is to, um, to, to basically create them in villages because actually they can create their own sanitary products to ensure that girls go to school, which is, just makes the whole thing self-sustaining. And that's what's really inspiring me at the moment. You've set the bar quite high there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll bring it back to her. <laughs> Sorry. So this is your inspiring... Yeah, and that's, I mean, I, you know, that, that, that gives me purpose in life, that I'm actually changing lives. I've met these girls. I go out to Sierra Leone regularly. I take women out there. You're all welcome to come. Um, you know, it's about, you can really have a direct impact on life. You can give money to charity, or you can physically try to affect change in community. And that's just, you know, that gets, that gets me up in the morning. really does. Cool. So, so it's quite amusing. I messaged um, a group of friends um, saying what should I bring and something inspiring? And I had comments raging from um, a McLaren buggy because we all brought raised children in London and we all knew the challenge of that to <laughs> a bottle of red wine because whenever you have a bottle of red wine, it means a meeting up with my friends um, and we're having a good old chin wag to anything as far as um, taking a picture of your au pair because I can't actually work if I didn't have an au pair looking after the children for me because ultimately with this kind of role, you do need to have childcare support um, if you're raising a family. Um, but actually what I brought along was a picture of my, gran um, my grandmother, who's 90 years old, and I brought a picture of her along just because one thing that she's always inspired me, she's always cared for people throughout her life. She's given up very much her own happiness to look after my mum when she was dying, my grandfather when he was very poorly, um, her, her mother, her father, her sister was Down syndrome. She spent her whole time caring for other people and she's really taught me that um, in order to be the best that you can be, always treat others as you want to be treated yourself. And I think that's, as a financial advisor, that's what you have to bring to the party, is to bring that ethos to, be, to the advice industry. Because actually, if you advise clients on that basis, you are going to get the best outcomes mm -hmm. for everyone. So I find her absolutely inspiring. I'm inspired. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I've got something completely different. So this is a little figurine of the Hindu goddess Kali, who is the goddess of destruction um, in Hindu mythology. You can see it there. I don't know if you can see. She wears a, a skull, uh, a necklace of skulls, and she's dancing on the body of her husband Shiva. Um, <laughs> she seemed quite appropriate for International Women's Day. She's, she's pretty fierce. But she's the goddess of destruction, so she's about destroying, but she destroys in order to renew. Uh, and she symbolises letting go of your fears and the things that are holding you back mm. so better things can take their place. Mm. So we, we might want to smash the patriarchy, but uh, <laughs> lightly, of course, but we want to replace it with something a little bit more fundamentally fair. Yeah. Like it. Really like that. I want to, um, just looking at that cake over there and thinking about destroying things, I really want to just come <laughs> to the <laughs> and, well, and I don't know eat what we some. replace it with. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. Calories. <laughs> our own weight. <laughs> uh, but that looks good. That's yeah. to celebrate, right? That was celebrate. And Thanks, I did bring my little selfie stick like thing with me as well. <laughs> Which we tested. Which we tested. <laughs> um, great. Okay. Uh, so there are other, other areas we wanted to look at was about... Um, Everyday sexism <laughs> in well, the workplace. In the workplace. <laughs> in the workplace. There's bound to be crossover. Yeah, there's bound to be crossover. But this is a topic that came up was it a couple of years ago now. It was um, people were talking 
more openly about what they were experiencing. Mm. Ollie, I think you mentioned that um, this is it's still coming up, isn't it? And it would be yeah. interesting to hear your thoughts. And in the context of a podcast, you know, one of one of the podcasts I like to listen to is called The Guilty Feminist. It's about how, you know, ultimately we're all trying to make things better and. Um, I promised myself I wouldn't use this phrase mm-hmm. in the podcast, but speaking as a man, um, <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm not perfect. You know, there are times where I use phrases that, you know, I just don't interrogate before using them. And I think, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that. That could cause offence or whatever. I don't, you know, I wouldn't rank myself as a terrible sexist. But equally, I think there are things that we can all do to examine our own behaviours. And I just want to ask you guys whether there were things in the workplace that you experienced that... You know, made you go, <laughs> or you know, there's anything you want to bring bring to the table, or equally, is it really good? It, you know, is, is there a lack of everyday everyday sexism in, or not a lack, but is there lower levels of everyday sexism in the financial planning industry? Oh, I was going to say, where do you start on that one? Yeah, well, I'm, very, I'm very confident inside Investment Quorum that we have a very uh, equal. We have fun banter in the office. Uh, mm. We understand our staff. Mm. We work together a lot. We're kind of a family. Mm. Um, I think sometimes if you if you speak without thinking, you are you could sometimes say something that could cause offence, but you're not doing it deliberately, not doing it deliberately to somebody. And I think if you make a mistake, the best thing to do is fundamentally apologise. And yeah, actually, that seems to be and be very transparent. So I, actually, that was an ill thought out comment. I'm sorry if any way offended you. In our industry as a wider whole, in 30 years as a financial planner, I have to see the most shocking amounts of behaviour. Yeah. I wonder when yeah. it will stop. <laughs> yeah, I've got old enough and I'm quite tall. So, you know, but I do think things at times become predatory events that sort of thing and I and I just sometimes question behavior and I, I can't speak from a man's perspective with predatory women I'm not saying there aren't predatory women of course there are and I'm not saying it's but in the in the predominant things that I've seen I think it's about it's probably just general ill thought out behavior and slightly arrogant I can get away with it behavior without holding yourself true to proper values. And I don't whether they're Christian values or, or, or Carly's values or whatever whatever it is, you know, it's about it's about doing the right thing. And I think it's about having moral behaviour. And whether we've got to encourage that as business owners um, in, in roles of responsibility, that this is a culture that you inhabit, that actually there's a respectful way to behave to one another, both in and out of the workplace. Mm. Um, you know, and I think that's, it's parenting. I think it's it's responsibility in the workplace, but I still think it's shocking, mm. I agree. I agree. Genie, yeah, I think it's, um, uh, I think I've always worked in smaller businesses which have that nice family atmosphere, so you don't get some of the appalling behaviour that we've we've heard described recently. I think the what we all need to do sometimes is, is question the assumptions we make about people. You know, I, I've sat in meetings and been handed the photocopy to do, which I, I didn't particularly enjoy <laughs> as the as the director in the in yeah, the room. Um, maybe I mean to change how I introduce myself to people, but um, it's those assumptions that we make about other people, and we all do it as men and women when we see people. People, we have innate biases and we need to question those and challenge those biases. Yeah, I, I actually think office banter is really healthy yeah. and I've certainly, when I worked on the other side of the fence working for life offices, I've worked in the most sexist offices. The, the <laughs> things that would go on were unbelievable but then 
I worked in another office where I was the only female broker consultant with 20 or 30 male broker consultants. The banter was fantastic, but did anyone ever once step over the line? No, it was all really healthy banter. And I think the key differences between the two firms was the top, the management at the top, with actually how they handled it and actually what was coming from them in the first place. So I think banter is really good, um, but there just needs to be that right direction coming from the top, because otherwise it's a sterile environment to work in, and then everyone's watching their P's and Q's, and you know, we, you know, we're all human. At the end of the day, we all say something that we shouldn't. At the end of the day, well, you raised the point about you know, parenting is is a is a man. You know, I'm not here to debate on single sex couples, <laughs> so be very careful what I say. But I mean, there's there's a reason why you you know you have you have two parents, they have different roles. Um, predominantly male and female, and, and I think when you bring up children, they, they're able to see that defining difference between the two and that one isn't, whether the dad chooses to stay at home or the mum, or that, that the child grows up in an environment that shows a much more equal. And I think that's changing. Culture is changing fundamentally. Yeah. My children's generation and, and, and their children will grow up knowing that men and women work. You get a much more equal feel in the workplace. So... Perhaps it goes back to old dinosaurs, I don't know. <laughs> See, I, I disagree with that. Okay. But I would say that of all the all the mums and women that I'm friends with, there isn't a single dad that I know is a stay-at-home dad. Okay. And that there is, there is a lot of that the main caring role is always based on the mum. That you know, it's things like raising children. It isn't just who has to get home from school to pick them up if you haven't got after school childcare or something. But it's who organises the birthday parties, who organises the play dates, mm. who buys the clothes, and it's all of those kind of things. I can't, I can't think of a single dad who takes on that role. You could, you could ask the question in primary yeah. school: How many schools have Mother's Night? <laughs> they often have Father's Night when the dads come to school and do things with the kids. And I said, Why don't you have a Mother's Night? And they said, Well, because the mothers are all at school. <laughs> mm. Okay. Um, <laughs> in terms of and it's changing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're at the forefront of uh, the challenge for sexual equality. Oh. There's lots of stay-at-home dads. Uh, yeah. Um, so one thing that uh, when we've been talking to people in the last few weeks, we've heard that uh, women are meeting up, having you know whether they be conferences or just informal meetings, and it'll be women in the advice profession coming together to talk about some of the issues that affect them specifically, so rather than mm. men as well and how to address those and move things forward. And I was surprised in a way, it wasn't just one, it was one, two, three that we've heard about just you know casually. Mm. Um, so why, why is there a need to still have these? Is there a need to still have women-only events, women-only conferences, networks? Uh, are they useful still? What's your view on that? Yeah, I, th- I think they're a useful opportunity. I think we've, we've recognised there are challenges that women face in, in getting to the top of the profession. And I think having spaces to meet and talk about those things is is a useful environment. And I say that I have no problem if, if men want to have net- male networking events and clubs, whatever, that's, that's absolutely fine with me. I, I find there's nothing more intimidating than going to a seminar or conference and you walk in as a female on your own you sit down and then you see two guys in front of you another woman walks in around the first thing they do is look the woman up and down (laughs) and you just think you know and and that for me as a female on her own going to conferences I find it really intimidating but is that alone reason enough to have no men there 
Um, it's a case of that if the industry was more balanced, where you had more, you know, far more diversity, and not just women, but diversity in general, then I then that would absolutely for me totally take the need away from that. But while when you walk in and. 90 odd percent of the audience are male in suits and then you walk in as the one of two lone females in the room then you know it's i i find it intimidating really hate it i'm I'm not a big fan of women only events um i'm not a fan of women only awards i'm not but i think the i don't know how to change you know as we are today i said i'm but i am a big fan of where women work together perhaps as we are today discussing opportunities for young talent coming through male or female as role models as women, attracting more women in. So I, those are events, I think, that are really interesting when we collectively put our brain power together to say, well, what is stopping women in financial services? Um, and it could just be a much broader issue. It doesn't just have to be financial services, but we particularly... So I'm very happy. I like to network with women about that sort of thing with with women leaders. Um, I'm less... I'm, I guess sometimes get concerned about the, the outcome of some women-only events in terms of what the... Well, just because I think it can it became become a bit of a sort of anti-man thing and I've been to many where I've seen it and I think I don't like that either and I don't want to be represented by that because I have as much respect for my male colleagues as I do for my female colleagues. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. Um, you know, so I think they, they, some of those events have been in the past like that. They're not, there aren't that many female events, I don't think, out there really anymore. I think there's a, there's a few coming up around International Women's Day particularly, I, I think. Maybe that's why we've been hearing yeah. a little bit yeah. more about them then. We've just been yeah. reading our own coverage of our own event. <laughs> <laughs> I really I really enjoy getting together with other women who have the same issues that I do or similar issues that I do, whether it's family, whether it's just d- 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 juggling a number of different issues. I think we approach things differently, which means that we probably take on more than we should and we don't perhaps divest ourselves because we feel like we should be responsible for everything and actually it's 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 managing that and then the confidence issue for me is really key as I go into my 50s I kind of think this imposter syndrome needs to go from my life because it doesn't belong there I've earned the right to sit at the table I've worked really really hard to get to where I've got to and I think if I'm if I'm good enough at what I do and I think everyone is around this table then we 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 should use that and we should use it confidently not arrogantly I agree with you Jeannie I really do but I think confidently to to to, to, to embolden and empower the profession. I, I, I see, I mean, I've sat in on many board meetings, not my own, my own. Mm. I've sat on client board meetings because, you know, you're, you're advising to the board and often you get invited to sit in partner meetings, you know, whatever. And what I see when women and men are, are discussion, discussing things is a different approach because I think one fundamental difference, and I'm not saying it's all men or women, one fundamental difference is this ability to, that women have to assimilate information and consider and not react. So I think somehow at boards you see more of a discussion taking place over a specific point that might be raised as a board issue on the direction or future of a company. And this comes back to what you're saying about culture. Um, and I think this is where many very male-dominated boards, because male approach it in a different way, perhaps they don't have that slightly more softer approach about, well, should we discuss this first? Can I listen to your view, your view? Actually, a slightly more dominant effect, which causes perhaps decisions to be made not necessarily the right way because it has that dominance over the top of it as opposed to more of a discussion. I think we're more, I'm trying to think of the vocabulary word for it, but it just, we're just more uh, collegiate, I think, in our thinking. And I think mm-hmm. you, when you bring that together with, I, don't, I think you need all of it. I think you need leadership, you need dominance, you need, you know, but you, you need to have that ability to discuss things. And I think that's maybe why those companies, they progress further because they've got that culture changing mm-hmm. from the top. And I think that's what women do bring to boards. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So according to the Centre for Economic and Business Research, 
predicted that by 2025, which I might add is not that far away, uh, will own women will own 60% of the nation's personal wealth, um, which is amazing. And that's a great segue onto the issue of female clients, because if women, according to the ONS, are living longer than men still, and you have a sort of female longevity, so to speak, and a female wealth. I mean, that combined creates a tremendous opportunity, doesn't yeah. it, to advise women. Um, but what are the issues about specifically relating to female I advice? Think, I think advice and women, I think the difficulty that women still face, and whether I sit with a client giving them advice or whether I sit on the client side of the table getting advice for, let's say, for an investment mm. management proposition or whatever, funda fundamentally, women... They would like to be explained to, they like to be listened to. And I think, as I said, it comes back to that's that's a need that women have in order to want to build the rapport, to trust, to take the relationship forward. I, whether that's a woman or a man doing that, but that's what women particularly want. They, I think they have different needs and perhaps their needs are much more focused on the end result. And I don't mean performance on investment. I think they're looking for a security over the outcome. Will my children's education be funded by this ISA as opposed to what investment returns can you get me from Bitcoin? And I think so. I think the male approach and the female approach is that's what I, I see on the advice side. I think and the other problem with the sector on investment management and advice is that we just overcomplicate it with language. And we have to learn to get better and better and better at delivering solutions to clients using language that is their language and not is our language. And we mm. just, it, and it's so boring to sit through an investment presentation talking about asset allocation and, and you know, uh, sector diversity and, and di you know, whatever. And it just, it, people switch off. Mm. And I think if you want to engage women and, and men alike in some respect that work in creative fields or architecture or, or fashion, they just not interested. You need to find a way to deliver it in a language. And I think women are very good at that. But that's what I think women in, that I meet particularly want to hear more of. Mm, and I think also men want to hear more of it as well. well. Yeah. Um, I think we, we are drowning in jargon. We talk such oh. impenetrable nonsense sometimes. Um, it's a wonder that yes. we have any clients engaging with us. Uh, and we just need to learn to be clearer and communicate with people in normal normal language. And more than um, plain English. Yes. Mm. More than plain yeah. English. And it's not about you know having female-friendly websites where we talk about buying handbags and shoes. No, no one wants any of that. Um, we just need to be able to communicate with people on their own terms, and I think that will help us engage with more men as well as more women. Yeah, I've certainly had clients tell me that I remember specific, um, there was husband and wife came in and the husband was complaining that they'd been that they'd been seeing another financial advisor and he only addressed the husband through the whole meeting yeah. and he didn't address the wife once and he was really offended by that because he said you know we're a family it is our yeah. money and he was really offended by that and I've had other women say to me that they felt patronized by men yeah. because of the way they speak to them now it, it isn't necessarily it was a man that was patronizing it's coming back to the jargon unless we start talking in a way that clients are going to engage with we as an industry are actually not going to enable clients to have the confidence to invest in the first place. I think an easy win is also if you are often, if, if it is the man that's generally working and the, and the, and the, and the mum is at home and you're doing some financial planning, is that you make sure that the wife or partner is there at the meeting, you know, and, and they say, well, you know, she doesn't really want to come in. If she doesn't want to come in, is it, and why doesn't she want to come in? You know, and I know, and I, I see, I see a lot of women coming in, often stay home and they, they get, they get nicely dressed up to come to a meeting in the city or whatever, and they make a real effort. And I think 
we owe it to them to make sure that they understand the decisions that are being made for them as a family. And if you do lose the breadwinner and you're dealing with post-death situation, which, which we've had to deal with many times, you've definitely got to engage the woman because suddenly she has to take a bigger role in the finances and particularly as we get into our 60s and 70s. So um, I think a really easy win is making sure that the couple is always there when you're advising on a couple yeah. to ensure that doesn't happen. I'm interested to know how you can ensure that is the case. So how can you encourage the women more generally on their own or as a, a wife, uh, a mother, uh, to come into those meetings? Listening to them and asking the right questions. You know, what do you want the outcome of this to be? You know, talk me through it. What does it look like? Colour it in. Paint it for me. Mm. You know, but if you don't want to come in in the first place, though, how would you make sure they're, they're at the table? Well, OK, <laughs> okay well, you rely, you rely, at some point, you rely on the, 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 the family unit. If we're dealing with a family here, we're dealing with a family that the husband will want the wife engaged in those conversations. Mm. You have to ask those questions. Some do very separate finances, don't they? I think if you're dealing with, a, again, a woman on her own, it's the same kind of thing. That Actually, we're dealing with your finances as a, as a, as a couple. Should we make sure that you're both engaged in that conversation so it's rare I think if you ask it's rare that they don't come in if you lose them on the first meeting they'll never come back mm. and you mustn't lose them because you get an opportunity I mean it's this whole thing about you've got 10 seconds to make a first impression yeah. if you're going to sort of look at the woman up and down and sort of say oh god why are you here you know you're going to switch them off immediately mm. so we've got a duty a responsibility as in the role that we do to ensure that they're they, they feel engaged in the process from the minute they walk in I, f I find that when you're actually but carrying out proper financial planning and cash flow modelling, that's what women generally engage far more yeah. with, rather than talking about an ice or a pension, a SIP, you know, and a plethora of different investments that you can invest with, that they look at the, or they, um, come back to your point, Petronella, they're looking at the bigger picture. How can I actually pay you? How can we pay for the school fees? How yeah. can we help the children on the property ladder? That's what they're far more interested in. And coming back to your question, Christine, as to how to get the women in in the first place, we won't do financial planning and charge the financial planning fees for a couple unless both the husband and wife come in for yeah. meetings. Because my view is it's a total waste of their money paying me a fee for a service when I'm only getting one person's view. Yeah. And, okay. and it does mean you end up having the clients arguing with you, you know, <laughs> in the meeting. How much because, do you spend? Yeah, you know, because they've never, you know, they've never actually had the discussion about yeah. private education. They've never had the discussion how the they Amazon want to help the children on the property ladder. And you do have to work as the mediator to yeah. try and enable them to come to an agreement. Or if they can't, you know, let's park it now, go off, talk about it at home and then send me your thoughts. I had a, I had a very funny meeting, a very funny meeting with two accountants both equity partners and we did their cash flow and um, anyway so she they have to disclose all their expenditure both discretionary and basic and so I said to her right let's get to clothes and obviously you know you're a professional woman you've got to spend money on clothes and bags and shoes and stuff and he sort of was sitting there and went yeah now we'll see what you spend on clothes and she tended to spend sort of on a regular basis she would buy clothes on a monthly basis so we were able to put this together and then we interrogated him and he had a very he's a golf fanatic and then we said to him so what do you buy and how do you shop and he would buy so many suits a year in one go etc etc and then we worked out what he spent in the golf shop and he only did it twice a year and it turns out that he spent more than she did and it was very funny watching the dynamics play out with the two of them so uh yeah great thanks everyone uh, that's just about all we've got time for uh today i'm afraid um but thank you so much for being here we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have um the final thing to say is that if you really enjoyed uh, what you heard today, please don't forget to subscribe to the New Model Advisor podcast. Uh, you can do that by going uh, to iTunes and searching New Model Advisor. 
uh, or you can search on your favourite uh, app of choice on your phone if you wish. And you'll also find all the relevant information about our podcast, including previous episodes on the New Model Advisor website. So for now, until next week, it's thanks and goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.